Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. This week we've got a great guest for you, someone that I've been trying to track down and uh, get on the show for weeks and weeks and weeks, but he's a really busy guy, so I'm really happy that we finally got him on the show. His name's Tim Lees. Uh, He's got a wealth of experience in academy football in England, working at Watford, Wigan and Liverpool, and now he's an academy manager out in America. So he's got lots of really great experiences to to share with us in terms of coaching and player development and he's worked with some top top people and as I know you know that that's how you really learn from working with some fantastic people so this is a really interesting show one definitely not to miss uh, sorry we haven't been around for the last few weeks I've been traveling extensively around North America and Asia uh, it fills me with enormous pride to see so many people using the online technical program mypersonalfootballcoach.com all around the world and also now we're, we're supporting so many clubs now We've got some partner clubs all around the world who are using the online technical program as a homework program. So if you're interested in uh, being a partner club, just drop us a line and we can get in touch and show you what we can do. And also really excited that uh, also Ryan Hall's come aboard and is now helping us with the coaches pass, uh, something that really all coaches uh, would really benefit from. It now includes weekly 1v1 sessions emailed uh, directly to your inbox. Also, we've got uh, guests um guest uh, people people from clubs such as uh, West Ham, Fulham and many more who are who are giving us some guest articles in the next uh, few weeks and months so that's really exciting so lots going on and I hope you're enjoying it all and without further ado let's get into the show. So Tim Lees welcome to the show. Thanks Saul thank you. Um, thanks for joining us mate can you just give us a brief outline of your playing and coaching career? Yeah, so uh, as, a, as a kid, I did kind of the normal route. Um, played for a couple of different academies at Bolton and then got released just before scholarship. Uh, went kind of down non-league route and still kept the dream of trying to play uh, professionally and thought, right, I'll try and go through kind of the back door route as a player. Uh, played non-league for, for about four or five years and then um, kind of committed full-time to coaching after that. So that was, that was my playing career, really. And then, and then, what? Tell us about then your coaching career. Yeah, so started off pretty young. Um, did my first session about sixteen. Went did kind of the, the normal coaching route, if you like. Started off just working voluntary in schools and at local clubs, and kind of assisting with an age group, and then taking a voluntary age group at a local club. Started progressed to doing Saturday mornings, where you, you're bringing kids in for a pound each or whatever. Uh, obviously started getting my qualifications through that and just started building experience up so doing soccer schools in the summer and then um, moved to London to play and as I moved to London so I, I just got my level uh, what had I got I just got I just finished my level two and I just wanted more experience so I've managed like a few soccer schools around and done a lot of different bits without actually working at a pro club so to be honest so I sent I sent uh, I sent an email out to every single club across anywhere as high as kind of the Midlands really emailed every single club with my CV and just said listen can I can I come and just put cones out for someone I just want to learn 
and not a lot of clubs got back to me. Um, the one that did was Watford, and I was living in central London at the time, and um, yeah, just went down to Watford, put cones out for a bit, ended up, you know, it is a lot, as a lot of people do, you end up kind of making contacts and getting to know people there, and then a uh, guy called Nick Cox, who's academy manager now at Man United, he just gave me a chance when no one else did, really. Managed an age group, so managed the U13s at Watford, and then um, within a month, kind of a full-time job opened up. So I was working with the 12 to 16s, and I don't know if you remember at the time, they were the them and Celtic were the first school-based system, so the kids kind of went to school there and trained during the daytime. So I um, was really fortunate because didn't know at the time but kind of my foundations as a coach was was working under Nick who, who'd worked under Dick Bate at Watford before that and uh, yeah it was a really good foundation at Watford for me so moved after that to Wigan and then uh, finished up at Liverpool yeah and now I'm, now I'm over in the US so that's quite a, like a, a meteoric rise isn't it going you're putting the cones out and then you're, you're full time uh, a month later yeah, do you know what? So I was just, I was just keen. I just wanted to learn, and I'd, I'd been into a lot of different places. No one, had, no one had given me a chance really, and I kind of accepted that I wasn't going to play a high level, a high enough level that I wanted to in terms of playing. Um, so I just went down the coaching route, and then I'd enjoying it. I was earning some good money. I was kind of running my own business at the same time, but I knew there was kind of a, a whole other level out there, and I'm, that I really wanted to work at, and I wanted to progress up the system. So I just got, I got really lucky at Watford, and then just right place right time just openings came up and I was just really open minded to learn and uh, um, I was a terrible coach at the time absolutely terrible <laughs> no experience really to work at an academy level but um, just really open minded to, to, to learning and watching people around I was just fortunate that there was a lot of really good people at the time and um, you know it is just took notes after every session wanting to improve all the time uh, went through the tough times of getting um yeah, just just our academy football, you know how it is, mate. And so, what, how, well, how do you, games, yeah. how how do you describe the, uh, the the academy philosophy there at the, at the time at, at Watford? Yeah, so it was very much based around what I believed in, uh, which was possession based philosophy, playing from the back, dominating the ball, or creating individuals within it who could flourish from a technical point of view. So it was a great foundation for me because I was get, I was getting opened up, especially tactically to things that I'd never seen before, um, very much based around kind of fluid 4-3-3 model that you see in a lot of clubs now, but at the time I'd, I was kind of, what was I, 20, 21, something like that, and it was all new to me, so I'd done a lot of individual technical work at different clubs, but um, to go in and kind of, my first game was actually ironically playing against Mick Beals Chelsea, U, U14s it was, and I think we got beat like 10-0, and I'm watching this game going right. I am a long way where I need to be off where I need to be here, and then um, yeah, just went from there. Just just wanted to learn, and like you say, just progressed through really, really quickly. It happened really fast. And so, um, who who was your early influences on you then in the, in the early part of your career there? Anyone at Watford really stand out? You really talking about you know you developed um, there. Who's who really stood out for you there as a someone helped mould your coaching philosophy? I'd say definitely Nick Cox. So he was he was academy manager at the time. Uh, he went off to Sheffield United after that and went to Man United last year. But he was the one who really influenced me on and off the field, really. So a lot of stuff in terms of behaviour and how to act around training grounds and at the time how to act around U18s and first team. And um, 
he, he had a massive impact on me in terms of professionalism and pursuing excellence and wanting to be the best and um, always recognising that there were top people out there that you wanted to aspire to. So, yeah, he was, um, even to this day now, he was still one of the best that I've worked with. He's, and they had like a quite a phenomenal actually record, didn't they, at the time, Watford? They were producing a lot of players for the first team there, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. So it was unbelievable. I think they had, in three years, I think they had 52 players who um, were in the first team squad. And yeah, it was based around, a lot of it was based around like the 10,000 hour rule. And at the time, I think it was what, 2000 and, 2009, I think. And it was it was kind of the model for Cat One Clubs, if you like. So um, taking kids out of school, they released, they were the... Them and Celtic were the first clubs who were doing it. And in England at the time, it was only Watford who were doing it. So for me to kind of... It's unbelievable how it, how it happens, but I've, I've applied that so many clubs at the time. And then to, to, to be accepted by a club who I'm now going during the day and doing sessions before school at 8 a.m. from an individual point of view and then coming back at 11 a.m. working collectively with groups and then you've got the best players coming out, you're doing another session at 3 o'clock... I was just exposed to so much, so much good coaching around me, so many good players around, and yeah, it was a, it was a real learning experience for me, a, a real kind of key foundation stage in my learning, if you like. So, and so for people who don't really know about that that school model, so the guys they go in there from secondary school, which in England obviously they're going there at twelve, right? And then, uh, so how yeah. much contact time are you getting a week or is it a day? What's the benefit of doing that system? Yeah, so basically, rather than um, at the time, it was it was based around the kids not having to come, rush home straight from school. They've got a lot of homework to do. They've got to go to training. So the, the, the within the Herfield Academy was a lot of different elite sporting kind of uh, athletes, if you like. So they had like the best gymnasts in the country, the best table tennis players in the country. And then Watford were based at the school. So they had an indoor 3G where um, you just get, they just had so many contact hours and you had so much time with them because the the studies were based, the, the football was, was, was kind of built in with the education. So um, it, it wasn't just the football side, really, that I found. It was, you could take sessions away if they weren't achieving in their education. There was constant communication between what they were doing in lessons and how that impacted the, the football as well. So it was, um, whereas you go into, I don't know, you go into different clubs and it, it's a lot of them are completely obsessed with the football side. It was good to have that um just to constantly see the support of the education for me. And that's that's something that I still carry all the time now when I'm speaking to a lot of players and working with players. So, Were there any particular challenges, though, with that with that system, with the with the school there? Sorry, sorry, you just broke up. Were there, were there, any, were there any particular challenges, though? You talk about the benefits. What were, what were the challenges with having that, that system? Yeah, well, the thing was, so all the not all the players were based in the school. So you had some elite players at the age group who couldn't for whatever reason get into the school they didn't want to commit to the school so then obviously you had the other side of some kids who you would say at 12 right you come into the school and make a commitment of four years you kind of basically say you're saying right you've got a really good chance of getting a scholarship so then he's coming in the school and he's deemed as one of the elite players but then say he doesn't get a scholarship at 16 they've made a massive commitment and then they could a lot of parents were saying kind of right we've um so we've come to this school based on this, and now our education's lacked because of that and stuff. So there are there are other challenges around it, yeah. And um, also, I, I actually I was fortunate enough to work with David Dodds. I don't know if he was there when you were there. 
No, Dodzy, but he was... Um, no, I don't know. Maybe Zerati, but he, he, sorry, he said it was a big challenge with the, the travel, actually. There was a, the big thing was actually the expense, the travel expense of getting all the players in there from all over London because they actually some of them came from quite far away. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, there, was a, there, was a, there were many buses that went round different sites in London, but if you'd imagine, the days were, were really long and the kids are leaving really early and they're getting on really late. It's uh, yeah, that's the, the the transport is even now. No matter what club you go to, the transport's a massive part of it. Yeah. So then, um, what was your next challenge? And you moved on. You're moving up north, back to back to back to the old manor, well near there. How'd that come about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was. Um, I'm obviously originally from up north, and then uh, an opportunity opportunity came up at Wigan Athletic. So uh, um, I moved back up, moved back there, and then I was. Uh, Really fortunate because at the time it was when the E-Triple-P was coming back in. Obviously, it was a year before the E-Triple-P was coming back in, so there were a lot of changes that were coming on at a lot of different clubs and they knew they had to get certain things in place and certain staffing structures in place. So, um, again, just really fortunate that uh, I was I was ended up getting given that a lot of staff left Wigan and a lot of new staff came in and the structure completely changed. So a new academy manager came in and basically said, right, there's a clean slate. You can manage the 12 to 16s. Um, there you go. Get on with it. So although I'd only had kind of two years' experience at Watford in terms of being part of a 12 to 16s programme, it was a massive learning experience for me then to go from um, being part of a programme and although being like a, a, a lead coach in that to actually go and lead in a whole phase and lead in a lot of very experienced ex-professionals and I'm only like 23, 24 years of age and you've got legends at the club who've played there for 500 appearances and things so it was um, that was a completely different challenge for me to go to that And what was the, what was the philosophy like there then? I mean, you, did, you, I mean you, did you actually just create it yourself? I mean, what was it? How much freedom did you had and did you were you in charge of you know, moulding that for the 12 to 16 yourself? Yeah, so I worked really close with me and the foundation coach. So we basically went in and we had a clean slate to do whatever we wanted with it. Um, now we put a we put a program in place, a kind of skeleton program, and then the pre about must have been four or five weeks into the preseason, um, just before we were starting. Obviously, Roberto Martinez was at Wigan at the time, so he said, "Right, come in. I want to see what's going on with the academy. I want to see the structure and the philosophy." So. Um, after that, he had a he had a big part in in the academy. So first meeting went in there, right? Show me show me what we're doing at the minute, Tim. So I'm thinking, right, okay, I've no idea what way this is going to go. So I said, right, what? Well, how do how do you want me to show you? And he said, there's a, have you got have you got your laptop? So I said, yeah, I've got my laptop. He says, right, there's a USB. Show me the whole program and what we're working on. So sat in his office and. Um, I basically just went through the whole program and he went through it in microscopic forensic detail and said, um, basically, this is what I want, this is the type of play I want to create, this is the best way of, of drawing it out, I think, these are the bits that I like in the program, these are the bits that I don't like. So it was, it was similar in terms of principally, but it completely changed in terms of delivery and structure and uh, the type of player we wanted to create. So can you just tell us a little bit about that, Martinez? What did he? What was his vision? What, did, what sort of player did he want to create, and what was you know what? How did he want to get there? Yeah, so his his big thing, and I, I'd been exposed to it a bit before because I was a big fan of Rene Muenstein's program at Man United in terms of the one v one development. 
But his his huge thing was two things. One, tactical flexibility. So um, at the time we were playing four three three. Everyone was everything was based around rotation principles in the four three three. Is Roberto's big thing was he wanted players who were tactically flexible enough to adapt to different systems, different conditions, different formations within the game. So his whole thing was right. I, w- I want you to expose them from twelve years of age to different ways of playing within it. So right, they've got to be able to play. How does it change from a three diamond three to a three five two? Can they play? Do they understand how to change from a back three to playing centre back in a back four? So it was a lot of it was based around um, overloading the middle of the field in different systems. So whatever the system was, if it was four three three, getting the wingers to drop down a couple of lines and create a five v three in the middle. If it was three box three, can the midfield four dominate four v three? If it was um, whatever system it was, it was based around. Overloading the middle of the field through tactical flexibility and not not being predictable with what you do from a, a kind of collective point of view. And then his other big thing was the one v one work. So um, he just he, he was huge on creating your kind of Xavi, Iniesta, David Silva type player. Um, and it was something that I, I thought at the time, quite arrogantly, I thought I could do pretty well. But then the the level of detail that he went into was um, was massively just educational for me. So creating a 1v1 type player is something that I know you're, you're huge on. So, so exposed um, exposed me to different things like defender positions. So four different positions of the defender in front, on the side, behind and on the angle. How do we dominate a player in terms of without the ball, in terms of movements, creating space for yourself? How does that then relate to fitting within the game of playing as, a, as, as two players together? So whether it's opposite movements, how do we react to each other, and then how does that fit into the kind of tactical flexibility as a, as a collective 11 v 11. So he just went through a lot of ideas on how to create a real, unpredictable, dynamic, um, real kind of 1v1 creative type of player. And uh, there was a lot of trial and error with that, to be honest. So, so we, went, we then went away and... Um, just worked on loads of different ideas of 1v1 drills, what works, what doesn't. And that was a real learning process for us. So we did that for, for three years. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was basically what, what Roberto wanted in the academy was what, was what we carried out. And so how much time did you spend that? I mean, through the 12 to 16s, how much time would they spend on 1v1? You know, would you, would you do like a, you know, one, one session a week or something like that? Or is it would be part of every session? How much would that, what would that look like in practice? Yeah, so every age group from from right from nines all the way through to sixteens, and he even he even put it in place for the eighteens as well, um, which we did thirty minutes of one v one work at the start of the session. So that that can be um, that can be an isolated one v one practice where defender in front and dribbling at you. It can be defender behind where um, you're playing in a two v two format and you're isolating one v ones within that. So he wasn't he wasn't specific in terms of I want this exercise and this drill. But it was very much: Can you dominate your opponent from an individual point of view? Can you? Do you understand how to go against different type of opponents? How do you adapt with different types of opponents? So, yeah, it was it was thirty minutes one v one work every session. That was that was his golden rule. What he wanted as a minimum: thirty minutes every session. That's wow. Thirty so every session. Yeah. yeah. So, what was that like in comparison to Watford? How much one v one work would you do at Watford? Do you know what? Hardly any of it was so. Um, it was all. It was more collective at Watford. So it was more. Um, individual techniques, especially on a pose. So 
a lot of position specific work, a lot of you you working on your own identity, um, a lot of repetition of techniques. But then in the in the collective format, it was more um, playing a certain style as a team. It was it was it wasn't I, I hadn't been exposed at Watford that much to a lot of one v one work. Would you call that? I mean, this might be speculating, but I mean, would you call that maybe like a traditionally English way of doing things? Maybe at Watford and where at you know at Wigan under Martinez is much more, much more versatile, so not very conventional type way of doing things at an academy. Do you know what? I think it was more. It was a lot of it was more at Watford based around like the traditional Dutch and Ajax way of four three three principles, and then just Roberto's thing at Wigan was just so different than anything I'd seen before. It was just a lot. It was a lot freer. There was a lot more. Um, the players had individual responsibility, to, responsibility and accountability to kind of have freedom within the structure while still having a certain structure within it as well. I don't know if I've explained that well enough, but giving them freedom within a certain structure that you want. So um, not just not creating a predictable type of player. And there was a lot of kind of very, very small details that, that he'd go through that were just completely different for me. So, yeah, so um, we were fortunate enough. He sent, so he sent us to Spain to watch... Um, we went to watch Real Vallecano because they, uh, they were in a similar position to us in the league in terms of um, they were constantly in relegation. They'd had a really good youth academy that produced a lot of players that uh, were kind of stolen, if you like, by the bigger clubs. So it was a very similar situation Wigan were in compared to Real Vallecano. So... Originally, we wanted to go to watch Barcelona or Real Madrid, but Roberto was like, listen, go to go to Vallecano. Like us, they've got a really small budget. They do a really good job with the academy. They get a lot of players through. They get a lot of players that are stolen in the competitive area by Real Madrid. So I think you can go and, and both of you will be able to learn a lot by visiting them and watching the academy, watching the first team. So, yeah, that, that was slightly different because you know it is. A lot of coaches will go, right, I'll go, I want to go and watch Barcelona and Real Madrid. And you go over and you're watching unbelievable players, but you, you don't actually, from my personal experience, you don't actually get that much out of it because the not that not the coaches have to work less because the players are elite, but I, I find it much more beneficial going to a smaller club where um, they were very similar in terms of us that what they were trying to achieve. And I suppose yeah, the similar sort of sort of player type as well, isn't there? Much more of a, a mix of players yeah, that you're dealing with. Very yeah, very similar, very. Um, the street player getting kids from kind of not affluent areas, not being able to go and buy the best players. It was a very similar situation that that we were in. So we got a lot out of it, yeah. So then next, what's your next stop then in academy football? Yeah, so uh, after when I was at Wigan, uh, ended up moving to Liverpool after that, mainly through Mick Beale. Um, I know you know really well. So Mick, the under-16s team that I took... Um, Kind of we played we played a lot against Liverpool and then we'd go in and it'd be um, we'd have some really good games and we just me and Mitch had a lot of good conversations after the games and then um, yeah they wanted to change a lot of the the philosophy at Liverpool from kind of the old Benitez to to the new style if you like and uh, yeah I got asked in to to go uh, to Liverpool so what was it so what was the um, you know the, the differences the contrast between being at Wigan and being Liverpool and at Liverpool. So working with a lot more international players, working with players that are bought from other clubs. So you've got you've got a higher standard of players. Obviously, facilities a lot higher level. So I'm I'm going from a Cat Three facility, if you like, where you're playing on a, a bobbly, terrible 3G pitch to 
you're training on grass fields in the evening. So, um, yeah, just high level of players, and the philosophy was was different. Um, so they they Liverpool recruited me based on the collective philosophy and and the one v one work, if you like, because that the type that was the type of player they wanted to create. But again, it was a real learning learning uh, opportunity for me to work around kind of Alex Inglefort, Pep Linders, McBeal, especially on like the individual side. So to really de- develop and learn how to base sessions around individual players, that was that was the key difference in going to Liverpool for me. And so, what did that look like in practice? Just to be, be you know, that working with individuals. Was that be explicit about that work? Yeah. So basically, going from a lot a lot of my stuff before was although it was. It was um, individual based in terms of individual technique and 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 out playing individually and the collective style. The style was really important, but the style was at Wigan. It was more based around retaining possession, keeping possession, dominating the ball. But the Liverpool style was more right, dominate the ball, but on the opponent's half. Um, from a tactical point of view, it was, it was a lot more advanced than what I'd been doing previously. Um, and then the individual side was. Based around right, what, how, how do you get the best out of out of your players? So, how do you really create and, and make sure that the players are enhancing their identity as a player? How do you make sure every session that the players are improving specifically on what they need? So it was it, it was different than what I'd worked on before. And then, um, so just tell a bit a bit more about the philosophy of Liverpool. Then, what does that look like specifically when there was that was, was Alex Inglethorpe in charge when you went there then? Yeah, so Alex, Alex was the one who, who brought me over from Wigan. So, um, yeah, Alex was very much he, he was he was one of the best I've worked with. Um, the collective style was based on right. If we're going to have a lot of possession, it has to be in the opponent's half. In terms of, we want to get the opposition in a low block, and we want to get them in a position where they're so far from our goal, where the strikers detach from the midfield, where they're in the the area of the field, and the, the compactness that they least want to be in. So we keep the ball, we get to the half. As soon as we get to the half and we get them in a low block and we get them in positions they don't want to be in, what is it now that we try and do? So as soon as we lose the ball, can we repress and counter-press and keep them in the shape that they don't want to be in? As soon as we regain possession, can we get to five as fast as possible? So get to five passes. By the time we get to five, we should have that big kind of open shape again and then you just dominate him with the ball again. So a lot... It, Whereas before I'd worked on dominance of possession and um, really controlling the opposition, this was more based around territory to be to enable you to be more efficient in transition. Does that does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And then what about the individual technical work? Was that a big part of the program? So like one v one work, technical skills, and that sort of thing. Yeah, massive. Again, we did probably. So the day release sessions were highly technical. Uh, they were they were run by Pep Linders. So. Uh, huge focus on individual technique, outplaying techniques, efficiency in the final third, uh, really creating like that creative, individual, flexible, um, just unpredictable type of player. And then, um, yeah, there was still a high, a lot of 1v1 work. And so what would that look like, that 1v1 work? I mean, what was who led that? I mean, was, that, was it like a curriculum or was it just, you know, you had to like do a certain amount of time a month or a week or whatever? Yeah, so Pep's programme was was based around you had to, every player had to be able to dominate their opponent, but there was a, you did that through a certain um, 
certain types of cutting moves and certain types of twisting and turning moves. So I'd gone before from a massive uh, ball mastering, um, kind of curver-based individual development program. So this was more really efficient in terms of, right, these are specific moves that you use to outplay an opponent. How does that look differently for each player? So a centre-back's outplaying move might be, I don't know, he shapes up the play to the full-back and then it's a drag inside. How does that look differently from a centre midfielder who's mostly receiving pressure behind? So this might be step-overs or cross-turns or them safe tricks to kind of get out of trouble or to be able to find a solution when there's nothing else on. So it was giving, it was giving um, individual players identities from a technical point of view, but also giving them um, specific kind of moves that they needed and to recognise that to really understand themselves as players. And so who do you, who do you really put down as the main influences then, there then? Obviously, you talked about Alex and Pep. I mean, who, who else? Did, anyone else really took inspiration from as a, as a coach you developed with? Yeah, Pep was massive. Um, Alex was huge. And, uh, and Mick Beale as well. was, was uh, they, I'd say they were the main three who, who really had an impact on me when I was at Liverpool. All right, so then time comes to a big move abroad. Do you tell us about your next, your next uh, yeah. gig, as it were? Yeah, so um, it actually came when I was at Liverpool. So when I was at Liverpool, uh, some guys came over from from the US and they were at a club and kind of when you when you're like Wigan and different clubs, coaches come over all the time and say, "Can we have a look at the philosophy? Can we see the kids, etc." So um, some guys came in just to watch sessions and then you just get talking and um, they were looking for a bit of a change in philosophy over here and they really wanted to push their academy on. So then. Um, they flew me over and they had a look at the club and they just had a, so it's a club called St. Louis and they had a, an incredible infrastructure. So training ground, which is probably easily cat one level, um, five different fields, uh, amazing complex. They had 6,000 kids within the club. So they had um, basically every team, every single academy team at each age had like 15 different feeder teams at every age group. So, it's completely different over here, so because like we're, so where we're based, there's no there's no competitive club within a four-hour drive. So the nearest big club to us is in Kansas, which is probably four and a half-hour drive. Whereas before, all I've been used to for the last eleven years is right. If I'm in London at Watford, right, Chelsea getting all the players, or Spurs are right. If you're in, if you're at Wigan, Man United or Liverpool or Everton or Man City are taking all the best players. So. I'd not been used to before having a constant battle for recruitment of the best players and um, constantly trying to do, if you like, trying to get to know parents and how, what can you offer differently than other clubs and that's, that's I've come over here and that's a complete, it's a completely different model because you're basically getting all the best players within a four hour drive so if, you're, if, you're a bit, if, I, if I'm based in Liverpool, I'm get, we're getting all, all the best players up until London so theoretically if your programme's good enough and you're giving the right contact hours and your coaching staff's good enough and the opportunities are right, you've got to be doing a bad job to not produce players, really. So, so how does that work then in terms of who do you play then in your in your games programme? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I've gone from travelling to, what, 30 clubs within, uh, within an hour's drive to uh, every single away game here. You, you, have to, you have to go and stay in hotels the night before because... 
the, the closest one to us is four hours. I mean, some games you're travelling for 12 hours. It's mm. it's completely different, but to get the quality of game that you need um, in what they call the, the, the DA Academy, which is the Development Academy. So there's, yeah, so basically the DA Academy is around the best 50 clubs in the country who are all have the infrastructure in the first team. And basically they, so they, they all have academy teams all the way down and it's based in different regions. So you've got a central part of America, an east part of America and a west part. And you play in your league. So the 16s and 18s play in their league for the full year. And they'll, so like I said before, you'll travel four hours to 12 hours for different games. But to get the quality of games that you need, you have to travel that far. Otherwise, the kids are not playing. It's not best with best. They're not playing against the best players. So... Um, it's it's a different model. <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot more travelling, um, but yeah, it's uh, I'm really enjoying it. So so then that's so I mean so that's is that like almost like the academy league then? Is that sponsored by the US Soccer or the Federation? I mean that's you know, that's or do you play other MLS clubs and stuff like that? Yeah, that's it. So we so most of the clubs. So basically, there's, the DA Academy is is the top 50 clubs, if you like, um, throughout the US. Or however, I don't know if it's 50, however many it is. And then at the end of the season, the best um, 36 clubs will enter like a playoffs, which is yeah, you go through different rounds. You play in, you play the finals are in LA. So it's it's a league format for the year, which is obviously different for than England, which you, especially at 16s because there's no league format. So. Um, that that next year is going down to U14s as well. So, yeah, there's a there's an awful awful lot of travelling. It's a it's a different model, but yeah. And so how's that? How's that? Who sponsors that then? Who pays for that? I mean, is it is it generated all through the in within the club, or is this is it sponsors from the federation as well? No, the federation don't contribute to it. It's it's each individual club. Yeah. So then, all those your six thousand players then sponsor the will sponsor in effect the elite team in each group was that how it works yeah so there's di- different clubs have different models some clubs have pay to play so some clubs the kids will pay for the year and then that'll include all the the travel and the food and everything some clubs won't so some clubs um, the academy will be paid for so it, there's different models within the states but the pay to play model is is different obviously than in England so is that what you have there a pay to play model at St Louis at our club is yeah so the kids at our club the, the top ones won't pay so like the play, the players who are playing internationally, they won't pay, but the other kids will do, yeah. And then so you sort of have like one, and you have like yeah. you had uh, you have one elite group at each team, uh, each age group, and then they'll play the in that DA as it were, and then the rest play locally. Yeah, yeah. There's one academy team. Uh, eight, it, next year it's changing, so it, next year it'll be 19s and 17s, and then it'll be um, all the way down to 13s next year. Will be in that academy, so. Yeah, they're bringing that competition element right down to U13s next year. Fantastic. And just tell us a little bit about the philosophy then of your club there at St. Louis. Yeah, do you know what? So it's, um, I've just taken, I've taken a lot of what I've done at different clubs, really, and uh, just put that in place. So um, it's, it's different over here. Every 99.9% of teams are, are playing the same way. So it's they all play 4 3 3 it's very similar in terms of the game model and the game idea for everyone. It's extremely athletic, so better athletes in general than in England, but not as technical and nowhere near as tactically flexible. So I think anyone, if you, if if anyone's um, anyone who comes over, 
and is is brings in a model that is is ta- is tactically flexible and brings in kind of that unpredictability element. I think long term there'll, there'll be a massive change because over here it's it's very uh, it's very structured. It's very um, like I say, it's, everybody's playing a very very similar game model. And so, I'll just tell us a bit about yours, particularly. Then, what sort of you know, what have you implemented to 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 St. Louis in the time you've been there? Yeah, so for two two different areas, um, we had the, brought in the, the collective development. So, how does how does the team style look at every age group? And we started that right from U nines and the individual side as well. So there's there's kind of two elements to the program. Individual side is based more around obviously the one v one work. So. Um, we have like a right from U6 we have a, what we call a 1v1 arrow that the players have got to master a specific amount of turns or a specific amount of moves and then once they've done that they, they progress on to right can you can you manipulate those moves and turns in like a random order if you like then can you adapt it to kind of modified pressure where cognitively you're building in a defender position and not fully opposed and then Finishing off kind of at the top of the arrow is the fully opposed 1v1 work. So uh, uh, it took a lot of time, but a lot of our coaches now can differentiate each player in the session on where they are on that kind of 1v1 arrow and what they need more of. So that was a, that was a huge part of it, bringing in the ability to, to dominate an opponent with and without the ball. Um, building in a lot of the stuff that I did at Liverpool, so trying to create a real identity for each player, and making sure each player really understands themselves and and what's going to stop them getting to where they want to go to. So there's a big, there's, there's hard, no matter, no matter where you go in the US, it's all completely obsessed with the the collective side, if you like. There's very, very few clubs who work or believe in the individual side. Very, very few clubs. Um, so in terms of the, the game model, yeah, we just, I've, I've, to be honest, I've built it in, in five different stages. So first stage is playing from the back or, however you want to phrase it, construction or building, however you want to perceive it. So building from the back, get to the half with controlled possession. Um, after that, it's movement ahead of the ball. So what, what's the movement structure look like from an individual and a collective point of view? So um, kind of like one that I got from Alex Inglethorpe, seven to one movements, one of, one of the kind of sub-elements of movement ahead of the ball being. So if I'm a midfielder, the average kind of, Coutinho or Suarez or whoever the studies that they did at the time looked at take seven movements for every time you receive it once so basically just trying to build into the players minds be patient with your movement dominate your opponent keep looking for the spaces if you don't get it keep showing so within that our players have really adapted well in terms of um, being patient on the ball technically improving receiving under pressure a lot being more fluid and more free with the movement and overload in the middle of the field. And then the final stage, so what we spoke about before, really, with, with the change, what, what I was exposed to at Liverpool. So, right, we've got the opposition in a low block. How do we penetrate? Is it is it overlaps? Is it underlaps? Is it forward runs? Is it 1v1 specialists playing within that kind of jungle and within that block? How do we really make efficient players who are in between the lines? And then as soon as we lose it, what's our transition work like? So get to five on the regain or counter-attack. As soon as we do, bang, right, now we keep the ball again. And then um, the last stage we look at is kind of which we want to be in less than 30, 20% of the time. Defensive setup. so all right, how do we defend? Where are we showing them? What areas of the field do we want to be in the ball back? 
but basically the whole philosophy is based around individual domination and from collectively having 70% of the ball, controlling the game, being in a low block the least amount of time as possible within the game. So the individual philosophy relates straight to the to the collective philosophy. Obviously, you couldn't have one without the other. So and has, yeah, we put it in place about 18 months ago. Sorry, so go on. Now you come, come, mate. Yeah, so put it put it in place about 18 months ago. Um, being honest, it's the the older ages have we found it difficult to improve them individually a lot because of obviously the patterns that they've been in for, for so many years. But the younger teams are um, are really excelling now. So from like U14s and down, you can see a real style every game. You can see a specific way of playing. The technique's really coming through. Um, we're getting a lot of younger kids now who are the national team are looking at a lot. So, um, yeah, we're, we're really starting to see this last kind of four or five months, the foundation start really coming through. And, and then how do you approach that in terms of uh, the different age groups? Do you have, is it just split up like there with the foundation and the, and the 12 to 16s? Is it split that way? And, and is there a different approach to the different ages there? Yeah, so say, say for example, that's a good question. Say, for example, um, I don't know, stage one is playing from the back. At U18s, we'll have certain principles within that. So, um, right, can can the fullback go one yard beyond their winger so we can try and drag him back every time? If the, if, if the winger doesn't go with him, centre-back's looking for the second line. So, it, it just gets a lot more detail, whereas with the, with the U9s, that might look right. Centre-back split, or the two defenders at the back split, if they're pressing just with one player, can you dominate a 3v1? So, we build the principles in at the young ages in, in the different stages but it just becomes a lot more specific and a lot more simple for each age group. So the style's exactly the same. And what we're looking for is the same. It just the detail gets built in, especially tactically, the higher you go. And then on the individual side, they do a lot more um, technical 1v1 work from 9s to 11s. So we, we, try and have, we try and make sure that every player comes out of the foundation age. Can they understand the game? Yeah, but we don't see that as the end of the world if... He doesn't understand to drop to the byline if he's being pressed by two strikers. We have a massive focus on, right, as foundation coaches, your job is, can you produce elite technicians who can play under pressure, can receive under pressure, have a mentality of constantly wanting to um, receive in high-pressure areas, can you dominate your opponent? So the, the focus really with the younger ages is more based around um, individual dominance. And then to talk about how many coaches coaches have you got on the staff then? Similar to England, so we have um, I think we have eight full time staff, nine full time staff, and then uh, each age group has like a main coach and then an assistant. So yeah, it's a, it's a similar setup. Um, and uh, would, um, most of those guys American, I assume. Yeah, they're all American. So yeah, um, we do. So we've done a lot of. Um, to be honest, I've done a lot of education in terms of every Wednesday we'll sit down for an hour and a half and we'll go through, right, these are where the groups are at at the minute, this is what we want to look, this is what we want to look at, these are the areas we want to improve. So it probably took about eight to ten months to really get all the staff on the same page in terms of, right, this is the play we want to create, this is how it looks collectively, this is how it looks individually, these are session ideas, how's this worked, how's that worked. So it took, it took about ten months to get everyone where... They completely believed in the DNA. They completely believed in what we were doing. Um, being honest, no matter what club you go to, and I've, I've had this at every club I've been to, I'm sure you're the same. There's always, there's always, 
strong-minded coaches who have a set way of doing it, they believe in. So um, it, it was hard at first to really get everyone to really see it and believe in it, but now we're, we're in a really good spot where this is completely what everyone believes in. Because I imagine it must be hard. Yeah, I know what you mean exactly about that, what you're talking about some coaches, but I mean, for going into a new country, a new club, and then bringing these new ideas in, which I, I assume is not part, massively part of the American Federation Education yeah. Programme, so you most you're sort of also having to almost retrain uh, these coaches from scratch, not from scratch, but you know what I mean. But you know, really implant these ideas into them. That's it. It's all exactly. So the the the, the, pro, the problem that we had at first was, um, and I'm sure you've seen it a million times. The perception of one v one work is oh, so we want to create a load of dribblers and we want the centre backs dribbling through the whole team. So that was the that was the misconception at first of right. What does this one v one work look like? What does individual dominance look like? So that that was a mass education in itself that I didn't really anticipate, to be honest. Um, so really trying to get everyone on board in terms of individual development was hard because the American way is collective. The American way is team is success is winning. So although that has a lot of positive things, um, getting them to believe in individual individual development took a long, long time. Even the collective development the so the model before was based around um, 4 3, 3 but not particularly having a lot of the ball. And if we have the ball, great, but more around being difficult to beat, how efficient are we on the break, how good are we in transition. So to change from that to kind of, right, no, we're really opening the pitch up now. We're, we want to expose players. So at the younger ages, it might be better if this kid's at, we leave 1v1 at the back, so he's exposed to 1v1 at defending because at U16, in terms of the counter-press, that's what we want wanting to be able to defend the halfway line rather than the goal so just took a while so it took a long time to really get them to believe in that but the biggest challenge was the individual side that was being honest that's still something that um, just that freedom and that um, the Americans in general like structure and like um, they like specifics they like to know they don't like right you've got freedom in, to, to rotate in this space you've got freedom to outplay in here it's not. It's just not part of their DNA. So that that was the hardest, the hardest change for me. And how do you go about like uh, recruiting new new coaching staff, and what sort of things do you look for? Yeah. So um, the most important thing for me is can you being honest. A few years ago, I'd have gone right. What's his what's his tactical information like? Does it does he buy into what I want to do? Can he do this? But now it's for me. It's more based around right. If you've, if you've got staff that can ignite players, if you've got staff that kids, every time they drive through the gate, they are excited to come and work with you. If, you, if, you've, if you've got 11 kids or 16 kids that are coming in and they are desperate to be coached by you, that, my opinion is that if we have coaches on a full-time basis that we're in an office every day constantly showing video examples, constantly talking about a game model and a game idea, constantly looking at is this kid at this age ready to step up to this age room? Is he, will he fit in with the style here? If you're having them conversations every day, in my experience, it, coaches fall into that. and coaches, Even if they don't believe in it at the start, they fall into believing in that over, over a longer period. So for me, the most important thing is, can you get coaches and staff who really ignite kids and kids really believe in? And I just think, in my experience, you can get the rest. You can teach them the rest. Um, and what's it like being the manager, being the big, the big, the big boss? Yeah, it's different. Um, it's different. There's uh, there's different challenges. 
I've improved a lot and still nowhere near where I want to be in terms of managing individual staff, uh, managing a whole program. There's a lot more to, to, to look at as opposed to just on field, which is what my specific focus has been on for so many years. Um, yeah, it's, it's been it's been different, and I've had to do a lot of a lot of development personally in that. But it's something that I've improved on a lot, and um, yeah, I want to continue to to keep developing on. I've also been exposed to a few a lot of different things, so um, just a lot of different cultural shifts. And um, like on the field, uh, unfortunately, our first team manager was fired last year, so I was exposed to uh, went in as one of the interim coaches for the first team there, which was a completely different experience. So yeah, a lot of different challenges. Um, personally off the field obviously being away from home so I've made a huge sacrifice to come out of kind of a comfort, comfortable environment if you like being in England and um, just coming away really on my own has been has been, uh, has been challenging in a lot of different ways and so what's what are the aspirations firstly what's the aspirations for you or for the academy as the academy manager and then what are your personal aspirations for the future yeah so I just want to see the club producers produce as many elite players as, as possible really so um, at the minute, the club usually has about one every year that plays in the national side. So I'd like us to really long term um, produce kind of a convey belt of players for the national team and, and specific players within that as well. So real unpredictable players and players that are slightly different than, than what I would say has been sent in previously. Um, I'd like the club to, to get the collective star right and once kind of the younger ones are in the older ages, I think um, they'll really dominate from a collective and individual way at, at tournaments and nationally. Uh, and then personally, I, I, do you know what? So I've wanted to, wanted to move into um, pro team for many years. I wanted to be a first team manager. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and at the minute, that's something I still want to do at some point, but I'm not, I'm not in as much of a rush as, a, as, as I was previously. Um, it's something that I definitely want to do at some point and I want to test myself at that level. And if something came up like that, I'd definitely consider it. But, um, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing at the minute. I'm really enjoying developing players and um, trying to make a difference from a from a collective, holistic point of view for a club. So, yeah. And and do you think the uh, USA are on the road to uh, improvement and eventually winning the World Cup? I think there's a lot of work to do, Charles. To be honest, um, yeah. The the US soccer uh, there's a, there's a lot of issues that they need to sort out themselves. Um, yeah, I think it's got a long way to go, being honest. I'm not going to lie about it. Uh, can they get there in the end? Yes, but I think it's still a long way off now. I just I just think they... It's very small thing, so athleticism is, is huge over here, especially even at national level. So um, in terms of the selection of players, I think... So for, for example, over here, you only get selected to play for the national team if you're playing up an age group and impacting the game up. So my thing is, and I've had this conversation so many times with him, is, right, well, Lionel Messi played down, so does that mean Lionel Messi would never get in the US national team? I mean, you're also ruling, you're also basically saying, right, let's take the ones who are impacting the game now, let's take the early developers. So I think they've got a long way to go, um, but they've definitely 100% got the players potentially to do it. Um, they've got the infrastructure, they've got the weather, they've got the facilities everything's in place just the, the coaching and the structure of it all needs to needs to really kick on more and now you've left England looking looking on reflecting what do you think uh, we could do better maybe here in England to, to improve player development do you know what so I think there's, there's some absolutely brilliant coaches in England and I think um, 
you watch things on TV, you, you listen to people, you read articles, and Spain and Germany have got all the best coaches, apparently. From my experience, which is, which is quite a lot of going to different countries, some of the best coaches I've seen are in England. Your problem is the opportunities. So the opportunities are at 17, 18 just don't exist. That's the problem. Obviously, because of the because of foreign players coming in and even foreign players coming into the academies now, there's just less and less opportunities for, for young lads to play. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's just the opportunity. It's the opportunity at that age. I think the US have got similar problems, which is kids at 18 go to college over here. So you might have an elite 16-year-old who's as good as in England or Spain, but then they go and play college then. So they go and play college for three or four years, which is basically universities in England. The level's not high enough. So then they're losing out on three years' development where similar players at their age are going out on loan, are playing in front of crowds of, of 10, 20,000, playing for a result every week. So it's just, for me, it's just opportunity. Whether that'll change, I really don't know. Yeah, because I mean, looking at some of those guys who are playing in the under 20 World Cup at the moment and the under 17s who got to the final recently, I mean, there's some real top players there. So, I mean, what would you, what would you say then? You know, because this has come up before previously in this in this podcast series, people talking about this this lack of opportunities, this wall. How would you yeah. think we could uh, combat that in this country and in America as well? It's just a really difficult one, and everybody knows it's the problem, but there's not a simple solution. Else, they would have put it in place. That's the issue. So, I mean, for me, it's not. Um, you can go in and you can say, right, this kids had this club's had this many debuts, but it's it's not for me. It's not about that. It's not just about that. It's, a lot of kids will go in, so um, it's not about going in and just making an appearance, going in and saying, right, he's played for the, for the first team. It's going in and staying in. And going in and staying in when Premier League or Championship have got high percentage of foreign players that have been bought in. And when everybody's fit and when everyone's healthy, actually going in and staying is a different, pro- is a different scenario completely. Um, I really don't have a solution to it. I like the Spanish model where the B teams are playing at a really high level, but that's never going to happen in England. So I really, really don't know. And um, and what do you, what's, what, where do you stand now on this, the, the debate that's the much, much debate, the much debated on social media about the un, unopposed and opposed work and everything being within the game? Yeah, I've seen that a few times. Um, to be honest, I can't believe I can't believe people are still talking about it. <laughs> Just for me, it's you train as close to the game as possible but you need to constantly refine your own tools and that, that toolbox all the time. So um, I think it depends on contact hours. It depends how much time you've got with the kids. Um, so, for example, if you've only got them two or three times a week in like a Cat 3 academy, I think you might have to work as close to the game as possible. Um, but you, the kids, it's completely, it's not even a debate how much unopposed work and how much ball mastery and individual technique you need to be able to master um, within the game. So... Uh, I think unopposed is a key part of it. I've seen real elite coaches, the highest level coaches, do a lot of unopposed work. Um, I just think it's like that 1v1 I was talking about before. You constantly need to refine the the, the different turns and the different techniques to be able to outplay an opponent. But then the, the, the closer you can get to the game in terms of going fully opposed, the more successful you'll be in the game. So... Yeah, people, I don't think you can go fully unopposed, fully opposed. I think it's just getting the balance right between the both, but that depends on each individual player. I mean, it's just it sounds like common sense, doesn't it, really? You think, but um, that doesn't seem to work often, common sense. No, I've seen it. I've seen constant arguments with it. Um, yeah, it's 
I think I think real elite coaches like yourself, people who've been through it, they understand where it fits on the spectrum. They understand the moments where you need certain certain to train higher up the ladder on some bits, to train lower down the ladder on some bits. Um, you, you go and watch whoever the top players are. You go and watch Coutinho, Ronaldo, whoever it is. They do want to pose work all the time, mastering the finishing techniques, mastering the outplaying techniques. You, you read about Coutinho going and watching videos of Ronaldinho online and going out, still now being one of the best players in the world, mastering his individual techniques with the ball on his own. So, yeah, like you say, it's, it's, it's common sense and it's getting the balance. And, and, and because of your, like your, your, your particular experience, uh, Tim, is that how important really is that the ball mastery, specifically in that 1v1 skill work, I mean, you know, as, as a, a, an important and opposed element? Yeah, absolutely imperative. You, for me, there's, there's no point in, you can be the best coach in the world tactically. And to be honest, Sal, I went down this route at one point in my career of being obsessed with systems and numbers and receiving lines. And you can be the best coach in the world and you can get the players in the best positions on the field you want. But if they're not technically efficient enough to execute what you want, it doesn't matter how good you are technically, how good you are tactically, sorry. So for me, to be able to dominate an opponent is a key part of keeping possession collectively. You can only dominate an opponent if you've mastered the ball individually. You can only do that if you've done a lot of unopposed work. So, for me, especially during, what, 5 to 11s, um, it's, it's completely imperative. Uh, now, some coaches will say, right, I believe more in curva. Another coach will say, right, I believe more in this type of um, ball mastery. Route. But for me, if you can dominate the ball and you can master the ball, it's a massive part of keeping possession even in a collective base if you can't do that you're going to struggle so do you think that that's that's uh, something as a as a coaching culture that we maybe we're not we're not capitalizing something where we could improve the way we 100%, you know, educate yeah, our coaches 100% so a lot of elite coaches i know not a lot a high percentage of elite coaches i know would perceive unopposed work and ball mastery as ah no that's just foundation work we don't need to do that We've got to teach them the game. We've got, we've got to make sure they can win the game. We've got to teach them to win. And for me, it's it's neglected a lot um, at academy level. It's neglected a lot at the highest level. You, it really, really is. Um, that was why it was refreshing for because I worked on it a lot at Liverpool, and that was why at Wigan, sorry, and that was why it was really refreshing to see someone like Pep Linders, who who developed so many players at Porto, to go in and watch him work with U twenty ones on outplaying techniques individually which I would imagine he's still doing now with first-team players at Liverpool. So it was really refreshing to see such a technical focus at, at like the highest level possible, if you like. And I suppose that's a challenge for people, isn't it? It's about if they're interested in it, it's where they're going to get this info. So I was lucky enough to work in, as I said, Tottenham when Alex was there and many other people, you know, to get in that education in it. But I mean, if you don't have that opportunity, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Unless you just, you're just uh, trawling online or something. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, a massive part of, of um, progressing as a coach is making sure you've got a mentor and making sure you've got someone who, who you can go to and can constantly improve you. You have to constantly see people who are better than you at what you do. So for me, when I was at Wigan after two, two and a half years, being honest, I was in a position where I was just kind of teaching myself and trying different things and learning from myself. So um, I think... you. you it's really, really important part as a coach. And a lot of coaches are closed-minded, but it's a really important part to be around people that you can constantly learn and develop from and see new techniques and new ideas. 
um, it's, it's a vital part of it for me. And so just the last few, Tim, I know you're very busy, man. Just uh, what, what advice would you give to a, a, a young or any coach who's aspiring to get to where you where you are an academy manager or when we're working Premier League Academy football? Don't, be, don't, don't believe that you've got all the answers. And I think every coach has been through that stage before. I think um, certainly of myself and a lot of top coaches that I speak to, you go through a stage, a certain stage, where you go, do you know what, I've got the answers, I know this, I've got this cracked. And then you go and see someone and you go, nope, I'm miles away. So for me, it's constantly making sure that you're open-minded and learning. Don't believe in a, in a, in a, a specific thing. Be open-minded enough to see different techniques. If, if it's your thing to, I don't know, right, I'm working on, I believe in rondos at the start of sessions, then certain positional play, Go and see other things. Go and see other people work. Go and watch technical sessions. Go and watch, get whatever access you can, but make sure you're constantly learning. You do not have all the answers. So for me now, I watch games. I watch so many games. I watch a Premier League game or a Spanish game every night. And you know what it is? So you reach a certain level and you just go, I'm, I'm miles off getting this cracked. There's a million things I've got to learn. That fits in there, but then this doesn't quite fit in here that doesn't quite fit in long term for this player. Can I do that better? So, yeah, I think you've got to constantly evolve your ideas because the game changes all the time. But never think that, you, that you've got all the answers. That's, that's a really important thing for me. And uh, what about for a young a player, a young aspiring player? Yeah, I think the um, most important thing for me, just love the game. Make sure you're with a coach. Make sure you're at a club, whether it's grassroots or whatever it is. Make sure you're with a coach that you believe in. And make sure you spend an unbelievable amount of time just with the ball yourself. Love the ball. Dominate the ball. Learn how to dominate an opponent. What moves do you need to get there? Know what your identity is as a player. Do you do you really understand yourself? So do you do you understand what your weaknesses are? Have you got an elite strength that that, that you're gonna make sure will get you in any team? So that I think for me it's it's really important to make sure that you really know yourself as a player. Make sure work. You've got a plan to where you want to go to, um, and make sure you're just working constantly on it all the time. And and finally, and what about um, as a parent, a parent of a young player who's maybe been identified as gifted and talented? Yeah, I've got some really good advice on that from a lot of experience. Just leave him, put him with a club that you trust, and leave him. So the best, a lot of seen a lot of elite talents, and I'm sure you have saw through the years who. The parents are the ones in the end that stopped them playing a high level, that stopped them achieving what they wanted to. Oh, I didn't like this coach. I wanted to take him somewhere else. Oh, uh, this coach says he needs some strength and conditioning at nine years old, so let's go on a treadmill and do that. Oh, this coach says he needs this. So I think, for me, it's, it's finding a coach that you believe in and make sure you just leave him to it. So too many parents, it's the same over here, it's the same in England, no matter where you go in the world. Too many parents get involved. They think they know the game. They don't like you. Um, they don't like coaches uh, rotating different positions or playing them down an age group or up an age group or whatever it is. They don't trust the process enough. Um, so for me, if you're a parent, just leave you, you just leave your kid and, and trust the process. And for me, a lot of it's ironic because nearly nine nine out of ten uh, parents who've played an elite level, so guys that have played top level, guys who've played Champions League and Premier League. They're always the ones who just leave the kids to you. They just leave you and they trust you with it. It's the parents who've played a bit of a level or they've played a sport at a bit of a high level 
they then want to interrupt too much and it just affects the kids I've seen it so many times and uh, just finally then Tim if people want to find out more about you what can they how can they um, find out more about your work yeah I mean um, in terms of practice the people are welcome to come and watch our club anytime especially people in the US um, we have a, we're, we're, a, we're an open door policy um, and then I do, do contribute quite a bit online sometimes um, so yeah put some things on, on, on my Twitter but like I said anyone who, who wants to come out and watch feel free to come out with them in the US Tim Lees thanks very much mate appreciate your time and it's been fantastic no problem thanks so cheers mate cheers thanks for tuning in to the mypersonalfootballcoach.com soccer player development podcast MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.